Welcome to the Next Step Business Podcast. I'm Bob Camp, your host. For each podcast, I'm inviting successful business leaders to discuss strategy, execution, high-performing teams, innovation, and more. Join us to learn more about getting the business you want and living life on your terms. Welcome, Noel DeBona with DeBona & Associates. I wanted to have this conversation because we were speaking a few weeks ago and we got into discussion about retaining talent because it's one of the biggest challenges we have today. Uh, Noel, before we get into that, I'd like to hear more about how did you get to where you're at today? Yeah, Bob. Well, thank you so much for having me today. I appreciate it. Um, I began working as a chemical engineer uh, back um, in working in consumer products and different types of manufacturing businesses. And when I worked for these large companies, I realized that there was a lot of red tape a lot of people, a lot of various functions, but people really did not work together in a team environment as much as I thought they should. So I actually began working in the military for a while uh, because I wanted to really experience high-performing teams. And during that tenure in the military, I realized that there were a lot more to teams than what I was able to access while I was in the private sector. So when I went back into um, industry as a chemical engineer, I ended up getting promoted into the ranks of management. And as a manager, I realized that it was very, very important to be able to communicate with the team. And when the team really could experience winning, the team was a lot more engaged. And I realized that if you could communicate to your team the purpose of the team and what we're all about, people really, really grabbed onto that and began working in a lot more of an engaged way. Um, so that's, that's what happened to me. And as I got up to the executive ranks, I realized even more how important it was to try to find ways to improve employee engagement, and employee experience. So I've been working on it for a long time. And I went into business for myself in 2006, late 2006. And uh, since then, we've done a lot of work with the human system uh, in combination with work that we do in the manu uh, management operating system as well. So you said you went with the military for a while. What, what were the main takeaways in working with the military and coming out of that? That was a great experience. I worked in the 1st Ranger Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment, Special Operations. And um, the few things that set aside those teams from anything else that I had worked on up until that point in my career was that everybody knew their job really well. And they not only knew their own job really well, they were cross-trained in other jobs. And we all had a, trust, a trusting relationship, an open relationship, where somebody wasn't passing, you know, passing the grade or they kind of slipped up. We're all very open about it. And we would talk to one another. And we held each other accountable to a very high level of standard. And uh, those were the things that were different about that team than anything else I had experienced in my career up until that point. There's a story about Admiral Rickover who 
during developing the, the, the nuclear Navy, sitting around the table and, and one of his direct reports wasn't uh, open about a problem. And he was just as hard on the other people who knew about it as the person who didn't stand up and say, I've got a problem. They all owned it. And that was, a, I think, a key piece in accountability. It's not just, it's not pointing fingers, it's about us. Absolutely. Some of the best teams in the world, world-class teams that fail because they're not openly and being transparent, they're not communicating properly. And I just had a, someone on the podcast a few sessions ago, and, and she brought up that same element. One of the things I think that makes their business stand out is that they have this open piece of being able to say to someone, that's not your strength. You need to have somebody else do that. Or you're not getting that done. What help do you need? Those are the kind of things that need to be had, as well as I'm, this is not my strength or I'm not good at this. I need help. Tell me more about what you're doing today for companies. How do you help them? We can definitely step through that in a very logical uh, format. But I'll tell you, the types of companies that I typically will deal with will be companies that are either in a strong growth mode or they've hit some unforeseen challenge that has got them rethinking uh, the way that they're doing business because they're just falling a bit short of their goals. So in either case, the first thing that we'll do in working with the leadership is really identify the business case. What are the business drivers that are being impacted by these problems? And what does it mean to you in pure dollars and cents? Let's prioritize the problem and see what the magnitude of this is before we develop a solution. Uh, and it seems so basic, but frequently clients want to jump right in to the solution and we always have to say, hey, let's, let's hold back just a moment and let's think about what is the true business impact. Because after all, we're only going to do something if it makes business sense, right? And we only keep doing it if it makes sense. Absolutely. So that's the first thing that we'll do. And typically what we find, um, you know, is a lot of times because of the way the critical teams work with each other or don't work with each other as they should in terms of the way that they communicate and cooperate and are aligned to the mission, we find oftentimes is 20 to 30% redundancy and overhead. And that's a lot uh, when you consider an organization that might have several hundred, five, six hundred, a thousand or more people. That can add up very quickly. So from an overhead standpoint, is that throughout the whole organization or is it primarily in leadership? Yeah, it tends to be aligned on several different teams, usually in the operations area, sales, uh, and then over in the uh, purchasing side and engineering. The interdependencies between purchasing, engineering, operations, and sales uh, really, really repeats almost the same type of patterns from company to company, industry to industry, and it all revolves around, it begins with what the clients are looking for. What is the customer looking for? And is the sales team really accurately representing that to the folks that have to devise a solution to meet the needs of that client? And oftentimes those conversations are not as straightforward or as effective as you'd like to see them. And so 
people waste a lot of time thinking they're working on something that's important when in fact it's not hitting the mark and they only have to redo the work over and over several times. So then there's a backlog of proposals, there's a backlog of different um, deliverables that the sales team is not getting, and, and it kind of goes downhill from there. Is that because, and I'm going from my sales background, is that because sometimes we expect salespeople to hit, I'm not talking revenue numbers, but there's activity numbers that they're expected yeah. to hit? such as how many proposals they get out the door or how many contacts they make versus qualifying good business and making sure that what they are asked operations and sales support to do is actually qualified. Absolutely. So you're then sensing that there's a lack of alignment simply because they're off on fishing expeditions just to make their numbers look good. And and you're right. And that's where we have to reel those those teams in and get them aligned. And uh, that's the second part of the process is really getting these various teams aligned. And, um, and we do that by working with the executive leadership team and asking them two very simple questions. What is it uh, that they are where they're at today in terms of their uh, leadership effectiveness, what they expect, how they expect people to manage those that work for them? Uh, what is the success criteria? And and then where is it that they want to be um, over the next year as they go through this transformation that they've hired us to help them with? And when we evaluate those, we do that on a competing values framework, and we're able to identify the nature of that uh, culture and where they want to see those changes happen in their organization. And so that defines for the organization kind of a roadmap of where they, at a high level, where they want the organization to go. Can you dive a little bit deeper into the competing values? Yeah, absolutely. The competing values framework was developed by Cameron and Quinn back in the mid-1980s. And um, it is used to be able to characterize uh, the nature uh, of uh, a particular organizational culture. Um, for example, uh, there's different quadrants that are associated with this, but some organizations are a lot more innovative while others are the exact opposite and a, a lot more uh, process-driven and precise. Whereas those that are innovation and, and f- innovating and flexible they're risk averse. They don't really care how they get results. They just want to make things happen. And that's directly opposite of those that are very process driven, that need the stability in their work environment in order to go through a process A through Z. And, uh, and they find, you know, uh, a great amount of uh, satisfaction in working that way. Um, and then you have a couple of other um, quadrants where you might have companies that are very goal-driven, competitive. Uh, they don't, uh, they, they, they're not so uh, caring about uh, burning people out, perhaps. They're very, you know, demanding environments, competitive. And some people are really good at that, while others competing with that are going to be a lot more collaborative and uh, more driven towards working together. And uh, they don't like to debate uh, issues where people that are very competitive, uh, they like to have a, a strong debate 
and they don't look at that as being um, a problem. But those that are high in collaboration, of course, don't like that a, a bit. And so all these different companies are going to have a blend of those uh, various quadrants and some more extreme than others are more, you know, uh, uh, less well-rounded. But we try to get our clients to look at being a little bit more well-rounded and be able to work in all of those quadrants. Really, really important. Yeah, as I understand, it's not that this culture is better than that culture, but there's these elements of how do you need to bring these pieces together so that they work well. Absolutely. Yeah, bringing them together so that they work well is really, really important. And that that brings us to the third part of the process, where the third part of the process is really to go down and identify all of the critical teams under that executive management team. And then we're able to evaluate and rank them as to the ones that will be the most um, inclined to be able to implement the changes that are necessary versus those that are going to have a little bit more, uh, maybe a little bit more of a difficult time doing it just because of the types of teams that they are. That's an interesting perspective, because it is about having the right butts in the right seats. But is is it more about their their style versus their skills, or is it some combination of the two? It's really going to be a combination of the two, but we always begin with evaluating the human system, the behavioral side of each individual on the team, each individual, and then collectively, what is the nature of that team so that we can de-risk the execution of what that team is being asked to do uh, by looking at uh, the types of people and, and where they are in those same four quadrants. So we have, a, we have a way of looking at the executive team, and then we break it down into detail to look at each individual team under the executive team. And then we rank those teams, and we're able to find out which teams are going to be more um, change uh, positive and those that might be a little bit more averse to those changes that need to happen in the organization. That's an important piece. So well, I'll, I'll come back. I have some questions about this, but your next step in the process would be. Yeah. So after we rank and, and evaluate each individual team, we then have a laundry list of opportunities to help those teams. And so it just depends at that point in time which teams are going to be most important, most critical for the executive management team. And they'll get to choose the nature, those teams that we begin to work with. And when we fan out inside of those teams, we're doing a combination of peer-to-peer training and various types of leadership development and effective communication training. Uh, So it's a wide range of different things. Sometimes we do delegation and accountability. Other times we'll do conflict resolution. But we always begin with the effective communication technique, which is a technique that's been developed based on neuroscience. Uh, And uh, it's it's quite an interesting uh, way to uh, facilitate effective communication between the teammates. One of the components of neuroscience, and there's a lot of different ways this is being approached by from observation to actually putting little patches on foreheads and understanding how the brain works and doing scans and such. But it is about 
understanding how someone relates to the work that they're doing in the sense that are they passionate about it? Are they resistant to it? What's causing that? Sometimes just the conversations around them. There's other factors and getting a getting a handle on what are those, and you used the word earlier, change positive. What are the things that will move to a change positive? And then from a, a change adversity perspective, what are those hidden barriers that aren't always uncovered to help get someone get to the next level? Yeah, well, it's very interesting. So we keep it very simple when we talk about the neuroscientific basis for our effective communication. Um, but let me just say this, that there's three different aspects of our effective communication technique. It's very simple. It's effective listening. It's open act, open-ended questions. And then it's directive, uh, just being able to get somebody assertive direction is what we call it, to get them to the final answer. And so um, what we do is we allow people, give them the opportunity to understand that before they can engage in an effective conversation with anybody, and we teach this for peer-to-peer communication, we teach it for managing up, uh, whether it's a boss or another organization that somebody has to work with. Um, and we also do it for uh, managers and leaders when they're actually working with their folks that work on their team. So it can go a number of different ways. But the most important thing is to be cognizant of what's happening uh, in your emotional state when you start to engage somebody in conversation. And so there's some breathing exercises that we teach people to do before they actually get involved with these conversations. And it's a thing that has to be practiced over and over and over in order to get good at it. But once you get good at it and keep practicing it, it can have a dramatic effect on the organization. But that's just the first part is to get ready for that conversation. And then as we get into the effective listening, it's really giving somebody the opportunity to observe where you're at, right, emotionally, and how your body is reacting to that so that they will mirror that and then give them the opportunity to be heard, which takes them down from a high stress level to a moderate stress level. And then we can start invoking the rational side of the brain in order to get a more um, effective understanding or a better understanding of how to solve these problems by using our rational brain. And the funny part about it is that the middle part of our brain where we store all this emotion uh, doesn't take any horsepower to run. We just run away with these thoughts. But when we're forced to invoke the rational side of the brain, it burns a lot of calories, which is why people have a hard time getting off that emotional roller coaster. So we work with people to be able to, um, you know, understand that and practice those techniques, which have a dramatic impact on an organization because most organizations do not communicate very effective with one another. In fact, these days, people find excuses not to have to communicate through email, text messages, and uh, other, you know, platforms for uh, electronic communication. The uh, talk about the physical component. A part of our communication is is nonverbal. 
And, and to your point, if the person walking up to you is, is experiencing high anxiety or very calm, you're going to relate to that person in very different ways. And so like when you talked about the, the breathing exercises and doing it often so that it actually becomes habit, becomes natural part of, of how you approach a situation or a problem. As, as I've heard, as I said for over the years, is the higher the emotion, the lower the IQ. So the sooner you can get to a calm state, not one of anxiety or not one of euphoria, you get to a better place to have a conversation. Yes, absolutely. And and that's really so important when people are busy during the course of the day. They're running around crazy. And, um, and that gets back to the behavioral assessment because now we, we, we're developing a communication technique. Now, in addition to that, the other part of that is understanding what our behavioral drives and needs are that manifest themselves in behaviors that we display and behaviors that we observe in others. And when we're able to understand the nature of the people that we work with and we couple that with an effective communication technique, now we're really understanding people on a whole different level. Uh, and how we work with those individuals uh, will change dramatically because now we have a better sense of understanding of each other. We've automatically been able to gain the trust and respect, and now we're able to talk about things that we were just leaving as, um, you know, the sacred cow that we just couldn't talk about before. So what do you do next? Yeah, and and then what we do after we break down the teams and go through all these individualized training is that then we allow them to come back together to their teams working in a slightly different way uh, than they have before. And they need to experience that. Now, once we get done with the human system, which is all the effective communication, resolving conflict, looking at conflict as more of a positive thing than a negative rationalizing the various types of behaviors of the team, characterizing the nature of the team, going through all of those human system elements. After we get done with that, people start to realize like, hey, we got some things that we should be doing different on our team. And that automatically transitions right into the management operating system because now they can see things with a lot higher level of objectivity they're not as sensitive to dealing with issues. They're more open, wanting to kind of help the team get better. And then that goes right into the management operating system side, which is really a lot of fun. People like that a lot better, but we get the hard stuff out of the way first. The human system side has to get done first. But you've yeah. heard people say before, Bob, you've heard a lot of people say before, you've probably had a lot of clients say, you know what? We always improve, but we can't sustain those improvements. And it's because of they don't have the true psychological commitment, true engagement from their team, because they've never really invested in the human system side of things. They've only gotten people to comply, not to commit to what the team needs to get done. And that's the biggest difference. So once we have that psychological commitment, now we're off and running. We can do some really great things. I'll just throw two examples, and it's not all of them, right? But just two examples. Sometimes you have someone on your team who complains, but you're not listening to them. 
and they're not listening to you. And so until you start breaking down those barriers, you can start finding sometimes that those complaints are real and those are, are opportunities, real. right? And there's opportunities to make improvement. Or you have that quiet person on the team who doesn't say anything, but has you know, that same issue. They see the problems, but they just work through it. And until you start breaking that, those barriers down, those conversational barriers down, those emotional barriers down, you can't get to that relationship that says, oh, why, if we did this, this part of our life would be better and this part of our customer's life would be better. Yeah, and those barriers are really perceptions. Perceptions are reality. We all have heard that cliche. And it's very true because those perceptions will shape how individuals work with one another. Now, as a manager, you can help diminish negative perceptions with people on a team by really individually, for each individual on the team, as the manager, as leader, making sure that each individual feels important they have a certain status, a certain level of economy, certain level of fairness, um, and that they're competent. They feel competent in the job that they're put into. And sadly enough, sometimes you can have the most competent people in certain positions that feel incompetent just because of their perception of how other people relate to them or don't relate to them. So there's some um, motivational drivers, again, based on neuroscience, that managers can really uh, take a rifle shot approach in how they uh, interface or how they work with each individual to make them feel a certain way, make them feel welcome on the team. But you wouldn't believe how sorely overlooked uh, those simple things can be when you're working in very... uh, somewhat chaotic, but very uh, hectic work environments. To your point, there's sometimes there's this cycle that happens. Someone goes to work for someone. They themselves are very competent about what they can do. But through the process, they start feeling as they're not being appreciated. Then as then the appreciation starts falling into maybe I'm not good. And it's just a, it's a, a vicious cycle, which doesn't help the individual or or the team or the business. And those are the folks that leave the organization. There's your turnover. And number one yes. reason why people leave companies is because feeling underappreciated by their manager. So what do you do next then? So after we go through the management operating system, that pretty much defines the entire engagement from beginning to end. The human system, the management operating system, And that is the whole ball of wax. And when we are able to keep those two systems in balance in each individual team, as well as a collective organization, we now have a team or we now have an organization that's going to be able to do its work in a much, much more efficient, effective, and productive manner. And that's really what we're looking for. And typically those engagements will last, you know, I mean, they can just be a matter of months or they can be a matter of a couple of years. It just depends because the great thing about it is once companies start identifying areas of improvement, they want to get better and better and market conditions will change or some other aspect of the organization will require them to do things a little bit different. So we teach, we teach our clients, you know, how to fish 
And then they can go and do this for themselves without having to be attached to us. So uh, that's that's the nature of the work that we do for these clients. And they go across all industries, but we do a lot of work in the engineering and construction industries, but we also will work in financial services, manufacturing, and um, uh, warehousing even. So, yeah, it's it's powerful. Let's say you're sitting in the seat of an uh, executive business unit executive or a business owner, what are the kinds of things that, what are the things that you should be observing to know if there's opportunity to make these improvements? Yeah, well, it's a very, very good question. One of the things that will happen in a lot of organizations is that these critical teams who, funny enough, the, the leaders of those critical teams will typically report up to the same executive. Um, but unfortunately, there'll be a keen sense of competition uh, between these various departments. And when there's not enough collaboration, then you're going to start to get uh, people doing the jobs of others. So some of the warning signs to look for if you're a business unit executive would be, how well does my team solve problems without me having to get involved? Are they able to work together? Do they cooperate with one another? And usually the answers to those questions are in the way that those individual contributors will work across teams not just the department managers or the next level of leadership down, but how the actual people in those teams work with one another. And when you find that there's redundant work that's being done in different areas of the company, we know that people are doing that because they're adapting to the difficulties in being able to have conversations or get the time that they need with these other groups to receive the support that they're supposed to be getting. This happens a lot. We have salespeople doing engineering work. We have operations people doing engineering work. Our engineers doing purchasing work. And that happens because these organizations are not working well with each other. These teams are not working together and cooperating the way that they should be. I'll go back to the example of sales and operations. If sales, as an example, leadership starting, we'll start with the CEO, is driving sales to do certain things that aren't really productive. They're just, it's activities because it's something we have to measure versus are we doing things that really deliver value? And then operations is trying to keep up. And so all this work is happening throughout the organization, just trying to work around all the obstacles. So people are working extra effort, getting frustrated, both sides, operation starts resisting what sales is trying to get from them and vice versa. And all that resistance and workarounds become counterproductive. And part of that is because the top hasn't learned how to figure out what really is important in this space. Where are we going to win? How do we best win? And how do we as an organization deliver to that? Yeah, it's really the communication of those objectives down to the operational level that is a gap. And it then leaves people to really 
figure out for themselves what they need to do. And that's a recipe for disaster. And so that's why um, it's difficult for people to work in these high growth companies where the communication is not as good as it needs to be. And everybody thinks they communicate, right? Everybody thinks they have a highly engaged team. But the fact of the matter is, once you start doing some pulse surveys, you very quickly realize that the perceptions of most leaders are different than the actual way that their people perceive them or perceive their jobs. There's Mm -hmm. usually a big difference between those two. Just trying to think through this in a couple different ways. Let's just say the sales organization is actually very effective and very efficient, and they're bringing in the deals that everybody wants. But the cog in the wheel is maybe we don't have the capacity and operations is constrained for for either a process or authority, ability to actually make a decision on something. And those pieces have to be addressed. But if, again, we're not having the communications, we're not uncovering what the root cause is, we can't fix it. Yes. And if you have an organization, that's exactly right, Bob. And when you have an organization that doesn't communicate uh, like it should, and that's part of their culture, uh, then what happens is that uh, people will come into staff meetings and they will give a very unrealistic view and they'll be afraid uh, to to put out, you know, all the problems on the table. And there's usually a lot of things that are happening that just remain below the surface and never get addressed properly. And I know that sounds pessimistic, but it happens in a lot of organizations. Yeah. Those who are struggling and those who are doing well. One of my early uh, bosses and mentors for a long time, I worked for him for just a few years, but he's a mentor for a long time, used this analogy. He said, when things are great, it's like having, it's like walking in a stream. The water is up, and it's up around your knees, and you don't see anything below, but your feet do. But when the water goes down, all of those problems, those start sticking out of the water, and yeah. that is not going to float anymore. It's not going to move, but it's already creating the friction. You just got to pay attention to it. That's exactly right, and that's what happens. Um, so usually when we begin working with one team, we end up working with you know many, many other teams in the organization because they realize the benefit that is happening uh, on the team or with the team. And, um, and, and people begin to feel good about what they're doing. And that's what you want. And that's how you're going to uh, reduce the amount of turnover that you have. And that's how you're going to get the company moving in the right direction. Yeah, that's the halo effect. One team starts doing well. Everybody else wants to join in because they're seeing that things are working. Absolutely. So in closing... Is there a piece of advice or a nugget that you can share with people to say, this is what you need to pay attention to. This is how you you make this first step. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Very important. I would say that for leaders, very, very, very important not to take for granted the way in which your organization works with one another, but to evaluate it um, and do so periodically. And uh, when you begin to sense that there is a little bit of uh, uh, friction that's happening or there might be uh, a little bit lack of alignment and people might not be uh, as open as they should be, and you begin sensing these things, 
take a deeper dive and really look at the opportunity to make change and how it can positively impact your organization. And don't, don't sweep it under the rug and pay attention to your human system because once you do that and satisfy those, uh, take care of those issues and make it a stronger organization, you're going to be able to take on a whole lot more work and uh, your people are going to be much more happier and less likely to leave. And these days with the difficulty in hiring the right people, you've got to hold on to your good people. And the good ones are the ones that tend to leave before the marginal ones. And that's what you don't want. So, yeah, don't be afraid to implement change. Uh, seize the opportunity to delve into the human system and you won't be disappointed by the results that you get. Yeah, and when you're observing that, it's that element of it's not just across functions, but it's up and down, whether it's coming up to you or going down to their organization. Absolutely. It's all those facets. Absolutely. Well, Noel, I greatly appreciate you taking time today. You've been very open to share what you have, what you do, and your insights, and you're concise. Executives need people who can be to the point. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. And, uh, Thank you again.